There's a pretty famous story about time management that was popularized by the business writer Stephen Covey. You may know it. It goes something like this. A professor was lecturing to a group of business school students. And he pulled out a wide-mouthed one-gallon jar and set it on the table. Then he pulled out a box full of big fist-sized rocks. And one by one, he carefully placed them into the jar. When the pile of rocks inside had reached the top, the professor looked at the class and said, is the jar full? And the class said, yes. And so the professor next pulled out a sack of gravel and began pouring it in, the gravel finding its way through the spaces between the big rocks. Is the jar full? The teacher asked. And the students catching on said, eh, probably not. <laughs> and so the teacher pulled out next a bag of sand and poured it into the jar until all the sand had come into the jar, again filling around the chinks between the gravel. Now is the jar full, he asked. The students were suspicious enough at this point to say, probably not. And indeed, the teacher pulled out a pitcher of water, poured it into the jar until the pitcher was empty and all the water was inside. What's the point of this illustration, the teacher said to the class. And an eager beaver in the front row raised a hand and said, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, you can always cram in something more. <laughs> and the professor said, no, that's actually not the point at all. The point is, unless you put the big rocks in, you'll never get the big rocks in. They'll be crowded out by the water and the sand and the gravel. Put the big rocks in first. That's the point of the story. So the big rocks are the most important things. And we talked about this story this past weekend at our vestry retreat, as we talked about goals and priorities for the next 12 months. What are the big rocks? What are the main things for our parish? And how do we keep the main things the main things? while also still leaving some space and some energy for those other things that may not be quite as central, but are still good and valuable and that enrich our mission. It's a useful story. Now, it's not a perfect story. One of the criticisms I've heard of that story points out that you can read that story to suggest that it's a good thing to fill up your jar with as much stuff as is humanly possible. If you're clever enough to get the big priorities in first, then you can also cram everything else in, and that's good. Which really isn't always true. Human beings have a need for some space. We need some room around the edges, some margin. For creativity, for serendipity, and just for rest. But surely our culture today encourages us to cram our jars as full as possible. In some cases, that's because we have to. 
You may be in a situation where you have to hustle constantly just to feed yourself or your children, or just to pay rent, or just to afford basic health care. Many in our society are in that situation. But even if you're a person with more economic security, you may often find your jar full to the brim. And the reasons may be more complicated. They might have to do with professional expectations, or pressures from loved ones, or pressures from within. Maybe from a sense that we are only as much as we produce. Or maybe simply from a difficulty with saying no. Saying no not to bad things, but to good things. Good things that just aren't the big rocks. And so the jar gets fuller and fuller until the space to breathe vanishes. In any case, I think it's easy for many of us to find a way to identify with Martha, who is, as Jesus says, worried and distracted by many things. Although the language in the original Greek is stronger. One modern translator puts it, anxious and panicked by many things. And there is an awful lot to find ourselves anxious and panicked about today. No matter how full or empty our personal schedule is, there is plenty in our world, plenty for us to work to make a difference about. And also there's plenty that is off-kilter and that we as individuals may have limited influence over. A situation that inspires anxiety of all its own. Jesus comes into the village and Martha gets to work. It's the work of hospitality. And it's good work and necessary work. Let's be clear that this story is not about Martha's work being bad or wrong. Martha is feeding hungry people and making them welcome. Here in this parish, we have a commitment to feeding people and making them welcome. We do it every Sunday morning at our Sunday open table breakfast. And it doesn't happen by itself. Now, if the dozens of volunteers who keep Sunday open table going each week decided to come in here to the church and sit at the feet of Jesus instead of going into Farlander and breaking eggs, we wouldn't have a breakfast ministry. So Martha's work is good work and necessary work. And Martha's work is good work and necessary work and needs to be held up especially so in a world then and now where women so often do most of the work around homes and kitchens. And because of that fact, that work is underappreciated and undervalued. Martha's work is not the problem. Hospitality work is not the problem. But what might be the problem is perhaps what is happening to Martha's heart and her spirit. 
as she finds herself overwhelmed by the tasks that began as an expression of love and joy and hospitality at having an honored guest, Jesus, in her home. And yet, as the tasks begin to take on a life and an importance of their own, so much so that maybe they begin to crowd out the whole reason for the tasks in the first place. I find it interesting in this story that Martha comes and essentially snaps at Jesus, the honored guest that she has set about to make welcome. And I'm reminded of a phenomenon called compassion fatigue, where people who are drawn to help others, maybe as therapists or social workers or healthcare workers, people who go into service ministries out of an abundance of love and care for those in need, can after a while find themselves starting to feel resentment and even contempt for the very people they serve. And it's not because they are uncaring people. It's because the volume of the work and the exposure to other people's trauma and pain becomes overwhelming, and it creates a form of burnout. And as I read this story, I imagine perhaps Martha experiencing a kind of burnout, as that spirit of love and hospitality that embarked her on this ministry of service fades into resentment, and resentment at her sister, resentment at Jesus, and triangulation as she comes to Jesus to try to get him to fix her sister, to try to get him to change her sister's behavior, to make Mary stop sitting at his feet and go suffer the way Martha is suffering. <laughs> Mary is doing her own thing. Mary is engaged in something that is fairly radical and even countercultural herself. Mary, a woman sitting as a disciple, in the classic position of a disciple at the feet of the teacher, engaged in deep learning, time and space set aside for contemplation, for learning, for growth. She's shown here as a peer and an equal of the male disciples in a way that just hints and foreshadows at the kind of radical equality that Jesus brings and that will take centuries to unfold in the life of the church and is still unfolding now. Jesus refuses to tell Mary to stop. He declines Martha's request to make Mary set aside her ministry and take up Martha's. But notice that Jesus also doesn't tell Martha to stop. He doesn't tell Martha to set aside her ministry, a ministry of action and service, and to be like Mary. He says that Mary's part will not, taken, not be taken from her. He doesn't say that Martha doesn't have a part of her own. This is not a story about contemplation being better than action, about running away from the world nor is it a story about action being better than contemplation. It's a story, whoever you are, Mary or Martha 
or both or neither, about keeping the main thing, the main thing. Jesus says to Martha, only one thing is necessary. And this is a place where some of those interesting variations in the Bible text come through. There are some ancient manuscripts, most of them read what we have. Only one thing is necessary. But there are some variants. A few of the ancient manuscripts say only a few things are necessary. And there are some other manuscripts that say only a few things are necessary. Indeed, only one sort of having it both ways. And that variation to me lends an interesting ambiguity to Jesus's remark. Maybe Jesus is saying that just a simple meal would be fine. Maybe he is reminding Martha that hospitality can be about rocks and pebbles rather than sand and water. That she can set aside some of the elaborateness of her tasks to just a few things. Or maybe Jesus is making a more metaphorical point. Maybe he's saying instead that although the many things she is doing are good, there's really only one thing at the center. And that he himself is that thing. The one thing at the center, the big rock, the rock of salvation, if you will, from which everything else flows. At our vestry retreat this weekend, we talked a lot about priorities. And we'll talk more and more in the upcoming months as a congregation about our priorities for mission, about what is most important about how we in this place, in this time, serve God and God's world. One of the ways we'll do that this fall is through a conversation about our campus, about our buildings and grounds, and about how we carry forward the legacy that past generations in this church have left so that our campus can best serve God's mission. But to do that, we have to talk about our mission priorities. Those particular areas that we're called to focus on, from worship to education to feeding people to other areas of service and outreach, Priorities. But I learned something this week about the word priority. It turns out it's a word that has been used in English since the Middle Ages, and it comes from Latin from the word prioritas. But what I learned is that until the 20th century, it's a word that almost never appeared in the plural. You didn't have priorities, because the word itself means the first thing, the thing that's prior, the thing that's primary. And so for us, as we do the good work of ministry in our corporate life as a congregation, in our lives as individuals, we may have many priorities, but we have one priority. Jesus is our priority. Jesus is the one thing from which our life flows. In a few minutes, after we feast at Jesus' table, Deacon Pamela will send us out 
we will have prayed to be sent forth to do the work that God gives us to do this week. And then next Sunday, next Lord's Day, we will come back again as we do week after week in a rhythm that never ceases to sit again at his feet, to feast with him on the one thing, which is his very self.